uh, and I said, well, does it ever, like, take away from um, your experience? You know, like, we're out here voluntarily um, to have fun. Like, a lot of people have fun when they fish. Like, does this take away from you? And he looked at me, and he got serious for a second, and he said, to be honest with you, I've never worked a day in my life. And I said, really? I mean, could have fooled me. Because this, like every time, literally, like we didn't, we had to go from like three or four different places. um, And every time he had to take down this entire operation with all these strings and all these, you know, fishing lines and all that stuff. um, And he had to, you know, gather up the fishing rods and put them in the place of the boat. then so that way we could, you know, get the boat going. Um, It was a tremendous amount of work for this fella um, starting at 6 a.m. Looked like a whole lot of work to me. And he says, I've never worked a day in my life. Um, it reminded me of our text for this morning because um, our story today, or our, our, our passage for today, is hitting home on this topic of remaining in the condition that you are in. Glorifying God in whatever condition God has you in. Starting in verse 17 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Paul had been talking about marriage, and he said he's talking to married folks and unmarried folks, and he says, however that may be, let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned to you in which God called you. This is my rule for all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Not sure how you would go about doing that. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek submission. And all the men said, Amen. Amen. Circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but obeying the commandments of God is everything. Let each of you remain in the condition in which you were called. So the past few weeks we have been discussing this topic of marriage. Last week we heard Paul tell us, tell those who found themselves in marriages um, to unbelievers that they should remain in that marriage. Because the best thing a believer can do for their unbelieving spouse is to be the best husband or wife that they can possibly be, physically, emotionally, sexually. This is how we glorify God with our bodies. He says, wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. But now, Paul's backing up, and he delivers this principle that he's been working with since before the beginning of the chapter, and probably since the beginning of the book. He says, we are to obey God's commandments through whatever means or whatever condition we find ourselves in. What condition do you find yourself in this morning? Um, Are you an employee, a CEO, a leader? Do you have responsibilities on which others are relying? If you don't do your job, what are the consequences? Is your workplace a better place because you work there? Or are you a student? Are you learning the things that you're supposed to be learning? Are you spending your time doing the things that will mean the most to you down the road? Are you behaving in a way that a student should act. Is your school, edge students, crutch students, is your school a better place 
because you're a student there? Or are you a member of a family? Are you a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter? Are you glorifying God in and through that role? Last week, we talked about the consequences of not doing the work that marriage demands. We talked about the reality of the consequences of our own poor choices. But those choices take place within a certain paradigm that we shouldn't seek to change. If you're married, glorify God in your marriage. If you're a son or a daughter, glorify God in that role. Don't seek to change the unchangeable. The example that Paul gives in this regard is one of the hot topics of the day in regards to the early church. Um, Since this thing called the gospel had begun to spread, people found that it fulfilled the old covenant of Israel. The covenant that had begun with Abraham, that through his descendants, God would bless the earth. Jesus, and perhaps specifically this cross-resurrection event, had fulfilled that covenant promise. Jesus is what it looks like when God is faithful through Israel to the world. Jesus was how God would become Lord, how God would become Savior and Prophet and King. And this message was, of course, not just to the Jewish people, but uh, the people of Israel. It was to the rest of the world. The disciples were to spread the the, the gospel to all nations, to the ends of the earth. The problem is, the problem was, what did that mean for the Jewish people? Were they supposed to stay Jews? What did it mean if there were people that accepted Christ but weren't Jewish? Were they supposed to become Jewish? And if I'm supposed to become Jewish, doesn't that mean I'm supposed to have, like, surgery? You see, the Jewish people, specifically the Jewish men, were supposed to be circumcised as a sign of this holy covenant. I mean, um, I'm down with with Jesus, um, but I'd be bold and confess that I wouldn't be all that excited about that particular faith tradition. The question of Jesus's identity was an issue that sparked a ton, uh, the question of Jewish identity was an issue that sparked a ton of debate in the early church. Um, but actually, of all their problems, the, uh, the Corinth didn't actually seem to be struggling with that all that much. It seems like Paul is using this as an example of a condition in which you should remain. Were you Jewish at the time of your conversion? Be a faithful Christ-centered Jew. Um, don't worry about being something that you're not. Were you a Gentile at the time of your conversion? Well, now you find your identity in Christ. But it isn't necessary for you to get yourself circumcised to show how much God means to you. Obeying God's commandments is what matters. Now, you might ask yourself, wait a minute. Wasn't circumcision part of the commandments from God? How can I obey the commandments of God by neglecting one of the commandments of God? Well, the implication from Paul here is that he's under the belief that the law is to be read anew in light of Christ. But regardless... The point of the passage is that we should glorify God in whatever condition we find ourselves in. And Paul uses this example in other places as well. In Galatians 5, 6, he says, For Christ uh, Jesus neither circumcision, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Well, that makes sense. Jesus said, Uh, that all the law and the prophets hang on loving God and loving others, obeying God's commandments by faith, working through love. Galatians 6, 15 says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. 
Okay? I don't think it's a huge leap to say I obey God's commandments by faith through love in light of the truth that God is doing something new in me, making me a new creation. And in Romans 2, he talks about this. Listen to the way that Eugene Peterson from the message translates this passage. Circumcision, the surgical ritual that marks you as a Jew, is great if you live in accord with God's law. But if you don't, it's worth the not being circumcised. The reverse is also true. The uncircumcised who keeps God's ways are as good as the circumcised. In fact, better. Better to keep God's law uncircumcised than break it circumcised. Don't you see? It's not the cut of a knife that makes you a Jew. You become a Jew by who you are. It's the mark of God on your heart, not a knife on your skin that makes you a Jew. And recognition from God, recognition comes from God, not from legalistic critics. See, here we find a basic and simple truth of Christianity. Christ loves you not because of what you do, but because of who he is. And when we give our lives over to God, he can work with us in whatever condition we are in. And before we expand on that further, it is important for us to make a few remarks regarding about what we're not talking about. First of all, we're not talking about rejecting progress. Uh, Paul begins his letter to the church of Philippi by commenting that he is confident that the one who began a good work in them will carry it to, to, uh, through completion. He says that he remains committed to their progress and their joy. In Romans, Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of your minds. See, God cares deeply about your discipleship. He cares about your growth. He just wants you to do it on his terms. N.T. Wright has this great quote, and he says that there's a line going around that says, the closer we get to God, the farther away we get from ourselves. He says, the truth is, the closer we get to God, the closer we get to being who we were created to be. New creation. God wants us to be the best version of ourselves that we could possibly be. And the other thing I'd say that Paul is not talking about here is is ambition. When Paul asks us to remain in the condition in which we're called, he's not saying that if you're at the bottom of a corporate ladder, you shouldn't seek to climb as appropriate. It's like how they close the movie. um, You guys ever seen uh, Monsters University? Have I ever seen that? So the the, the end of the movie, what happens? They, they, get, they get kicked out of, uh, of, of college, and they can't go back. So um, Mike and Sally, they get kicked out of college, and instead of getting all depressed, they pour themselves into being janitors. They pour themselves into being the best janitors that they could be. And then that is, goes so well that they get promoted to the mailroom, and they pour themselves into being the best mailroom employees that they could possibly be, and they keep getting promoted on and on until they get to the point where we find them in the, in the, in the, during the beginning of the first movie. See, what Paul is getting to here is actually very practical and very immediate. Whatever you are, be a good one. One of the commentators talks about how Martin Luther understood this. He says, Luther understood that the Christian is genuinely bivocational. He is first called through the gospel to faith in Jesus Christ and is called to occupy a particular station or place in life. The second sense of this calling embraces all that the Christian does in service to the neighbor, not only in a particular occupation, but also as a member of the church, as a citizen, a spouse, a parent, 
a child, or a worker. Here, the Christian lives in love toward other human beings and is an instrument by which God does his work in the world. See, God's call on your life will never dismiss you from your situation in society or in a family or at your job. Part of this requires some honesty on our parts as to actually who we are. And while ambition is a good thing, what isn't necessary for us is to wait for some perfect job. Um, I could speak to this. I spent 10 years killing bugs because I needed to make a living um, to support my family while I waited for a position in ministry. And this was incredibly difficult because while it was there, um, other people started to work for the company that actually, like, you know, wanted to build a career in pest control. But I knew that I could never buy into the lie that my own happiness was contingent upon me landing a career in ministry. No, I had a responsibility to be the best employee that I could be while I was there. In all honesty, it was a daily challenge and one at which I failed frequently. But what got me back on track was the knowledge that I had a choice at acknowledging the position I was in or fighting it. The more I fought it, the more I found myself becoming depressed and miserable. But the more I embraced the fact that I had an opportunity to build into this team of employees and develop young leaders, and yes, solve pest-related problems, the more that honestly worked to benefit all parties involved. We spend an enormous amount of our lives at work. And when you factor in that we probably spend like a, a third of it sleeping, it makes the hours we spend working all the more important. It's important not to over-spiritualize this. We're called to live ordinary lives. And there are consequences to our choices when it comes to our work habits or our place in, um, in our family life or our place in our schools. We don't have to let our jobs define us, but we are called to glorify God in the midst of them by being the best employee, the best supervisor, the best student, the best parent, the best son, the best daughter that we can be. Students, we live in an incredible country that gives you the opportunity to be whatever you want to be. Whatever it takes to be, to do it, be it. Learn it. Accomplishment. I, I have faith that you could get it done, especially our kids. You guys are incredible human beings. But please, never believe the lie that there's some perfect job for you out there that if only you had it, then God could really work in your life. The perfect job, like the perfect spouse, doesn't exist. Data released recently says that the to that today's average worker stays at their particular job for 4.4 years. 91% of millennials say they expect to stay at their jobs for only less than three years. On that track, you'd live for, you'd have like 15 to 20 jobs over the course of your life. That is a very restless society. Please don't make the mistake of believing that you must have the job of your dreams in order to find happiness. Work is a gift. Before sin even entered the picture, man was placed in the garden and tasked with the, um, to work and to till and keep the garden. To toil with our hands and to use our creativity to better the world is a tremendous calling. But please, don't let your work be something that it has no chance of being. Work was never designed to give you ultimate fulfillment. Um, every time we start talking about 
our jobs, some people automatically start thinking about, well, what about trash men? Or what about like the jobs of the world that, that maybe not a lot of people want to have? Can we find joy in, in those? And I found this really cool video um, this week that I want us to watch um, of these uh, trash men, these garbage men, that had developed this relationship with these two little girls. Um, watch this. It just blew my mind. That, to be honest, if I had their jobs, you know, it would be very easy to get, you know, maybe a little down, maybe a little depressed every now and then. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that sanitation workers, garbage men, are very, very, very important to society. But, I mean, these guys are, are incredible because they saw something in their daily life. They found joy um, in the work that they did. They were faithful to the condition that they were called in. And they realize that even if I'm going around collecting people's trash, I can be a light on this street for these people. See, once we're honest about, with ourselves about what we're doing, then we need to think about why we're doing it. And first of all, workers are worth their labor. We should never apologize for expecting that our jobs will offer fair compensation. One of the first passages in the Bible regarding work says that by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Money is one of the crucial ways we support our families. It's a crucial way of helping the local church and helping those in need. So a big part of why we're doing something, yeah, it actually does have to do with money. Um, one of the ways um, I, I do some training, some leadership training with our, our men at, um, at, at, at Scientific, and um, one of the things that I talk to them about is that if you're trying to kind of wrestle through how you're doing around here, one of the more important ways that you can find out whether you're doing your job and doing it well is, is, is the company making money based on your work. Um, it's actually appropriate for you to be thinking about, yeah, I'm actually supporting this company um, and with, with a very practical way. This company wouldn't exist if it wasn't about trying to make money. Um, so it's actually funny. They kind of like look at me funny like, I should be thinking about making, you know, the owner of the company money? Yeah, because that's how it works. Um, what is the larger purpose for the company that you work for, or for your school, um, for your family? How does that purpose play out for the customer or for the industry? Does it contribute to a greater cause or some role in the community? To what extent does God have you in your particular role for this particular time? And does that fact factor in to the bigger picture? Bill Hybels talks about the difference between being a culture buster or a culture builder. He challenges people to be, he challenges Christians to be culture builders in whatever environment they find themselves in. He says, no matter what level of the company you're on, you have a choice about what you will contribute to the culture. No matter how healthy or dysfunctional your work culture is, you can choose by the power of Christ to become a culture builder. You can be someone who blesses every person who crosses your path, from senior executives to entry-level workers. I've learned that when I show up for work committed to be a culture builder, my job becomes even more fulfilling than it already is. Even my smallest attempts to add value to the life of a fellow staff member seems to make a difference. And I pray that it helps that other person move closer to Christ. To what extent 
Are you building the culture of your condition? For all of those other reasons, we put our, what we put our hands to matters. But we're also called to be witnesses for Christ in the places we spend so much of our lives. What sort of witness are you being at your job or at your school? Last week, Paul reminded spouses of unbelievers to be the best darn husbands and wives that they could be because for all they knew, they could be the crucial factor, the means by which the person's heart is changed. And Paul reminds us that that plays out in very practical ways for those with ears to hear. So if someone on your job site or your school found out that you were a Christ follower, what would that say about Jesus? Would it make him look good? Based on their interaction with you, should an, employee, so should an employer want to hire as many Christ followers as possible? Or would they worry that Christians are just average employees that like to talk about religion and judge people a lot? There have been a few times when students have asked me how they should react when teachers say bad things about Christianity in class. My response is always the same. I say, well, the first thing you need to do is be the best student you can possibly be. If the class calls for intelligent discussion, then bring your best. Do your homework and then some. Don't come to class and protest the teacher by not doing the assignment. That's not remaining in the condition you were called. And if you do ever get into the position where you were called to refute an argument, you won't be able to do that if you don't understand what the argument is. We have to do business with not only what we do and why we do it, but also how we do it. See, I think we're called to mirror Jesus in our jobs and with our friends. And if you think that's a tall order, of course it is. Now, my hero in this regard is Amy, my wife, because she does this thing where, you know, James only child. We try to be intentional about him uh, spending as much time with, you know, other kids at his school as, as possible. And she has, you know, she organizes play dates, and they're really great about that. Um, and so what ends up happening is the kids are playing, and she ends up having all these kind of play dates with other moms, um, and they, you know, talk about life while the kids are playing. And more than once, Amy has gotten a comment from somebody else um, from another mom that has said, do you know that there's something different about you? Do you know there's something different about the way you talk to me and the way you ask me questions and the way you smile at me? There's something different about the way you don't gossip like other people gossip. What's that all about? For the idea that she's able to say in whatever way she says it, actually... It is because I'm a Christ follower. And I believe that the best way that I can show love to, another, to, to God is by loving you. I think that is a tremendous witness. But we also think about, in our positions, in our conditions, um, are there commonly agreed upon terms for your particular position? Are there rules, are there norms that you should be on a certain side of? Thinking about your job, is it maybe time that you pulled out your job description 
for the first time in a couple of years and made sure that I'm actually ticking the boxes that I'm supposed to be ticking? Are there maybe some areas of clarity that you need to look for and say, you know what, I've lived for too long at this company not knowing exactly what my responsibility is in this particular area, and I need to do some work to make sure that I'm earning my, uh, my keep in this company. Um, but ultimately, we need to be concerned with thinking for whom we are doing this, for whom we are in this position, for whom, who gets the glory and who gets the, 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 the toil, the, the work of my, uh, the, the, the fruits of my labor. Um, first of all, we wonder, is my position a self-serving position? Is this really about me? Um, and should I, to what extent should I ask the question, how can I make this not about me when I get up and go do my job or be a student? How can I not make this about me? Or if I do make it about me, how can I do that in a way that is going to benefit other people and glorify God? Because ultimately, we wonder, is this a self, self-fulfilling thing? Am I trying to place my work or my family or um, uh, my, um, uh, my, my school at the center of my life or my career hopes or dreams at the center of my life? Because when that happens, those things could never fulfill what you want it to be. No matter how much your jo- you love your job and no matter how much you dream of being this thing, the truth of the matter is it will fail you if you put it at the center of your life. Just like we talked about last week about how we cannot marry, uh, we always will marry the wrong person if that means that we're placing our spouse at the center of our existence. It will fail. Our spouses will fail us. Our work will fail us. Our careers will fail us. They will never live up to the expectation. The only person that can be at the center of your life is Jesus Christ. If Jesus isn't at the center, then something's off. However, if Jesus is at the center, then, oh man, then we have the freedom to say, I can put all these other really important things around and see it through the eyes of Jesus in my life, and I can put my work in its proper place, and I can put my marriage in its proper place, and I can put my education in its proper place, I can put my my ambitions and my dreams, and I can be asking myself the right kind of questions because I know that I have that freedom through Jesus who's at the center. Is God getting the glory? And I'll close with this. It can't be the church either. I love the church of Jesus Christ. I love to hope community church. But Jesus is the center of this place. As we gather, as we try to do our services and our programs and our meetings, it can't be about, you know, the church being that place, the church will fail us. Unfortunately, we will fail each other. But Jesus won't. He really won't. That's tough for us to wrestle through. It's tough for us to do that inventory and wonder, is Jesus really at the center? What choices am I making? What do I need to die to? What do I need to give to him and say, Jesus, you take this and do what you want with it. Your will be done.
because I don't think success will be in any other light. Let me pray. Well, thank you, good Father, for your faithfulness to, um, to our conditions. I thank you for the men and women in this room, for the students that are in this room, that they are called, called to do ordinary things for an extraordinary God. They're called to do ordinary things in extraordinary ways because they have that freedom only in you. Father, I just ask that if there's anyone here that needs to do some inventory this morning, that needs to think about, is Jesus at the center, really? Or have I placed these ambitions or these dreams or these hopes there, these work environments or this job or this position that I hope to have one day? Am I putting that at the center? Do I need to remove things from that bullseye? and put Jesus there instead. I pray for that person here this morning that uh, is thinking about these things for the first time this morning. I pray for this community, that we can be a Jesus-centered community and that the work we do would be appropriate to the people we are and to the God we serve. I pray for uh, this Advent, this Christmas season, that this time would be a season of that anticipation of knowing that new creation is possible, new creation is coming. Oh, Lord, we have such a witness, such an announcement to make to the world. Lord, help us to be and to have the word, to be the people you want us to be and to have the words that you would want us to have. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray.